Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks. I hope you're coming off a great weekend and your week is off to a great start. I'm grateful that you're here. And speaking of grateful, I'm so excited to announce a new partnership tonight with a beautiful community resort and golf course up on the side of Lookout Mountain, just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, called the Macklemore. Go look it up online at themacklemore.com. And Macklemore is spelled M-C-L-E-M-O-R-E. So themacklemore.com. You've heard me and some of my guests talk about it before. The resort is getting rave reviews and the course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend Kip Henley tweeted over the weekend that outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that by checking out the course in the resort online, again, at themacklemore.com. I'm going to have Bill Bergen joining me next week, and we'll talk about how the course was designed and what he and Reese Jones saw and what you're going to see when you go up there and visit and play. I'm very excited to have them as part of the show. All right, on to tonight. And folks, over the next 90 minutes or so, we're going to get to spend time with three of the top instructors in the game and Tom Patry, Dave Stockton Jr., and Scott Hamilton. And as I like to say, Tom is our resident director of instruction. He's done an amazing job putting together an indoor facility for his local students down in Naples, Florida, or for anybody who wants to take the trip down to Naples and get instruction from Tom. We're going to get an update on that, and I'll also get his thoughts on the two recent live golf events and more short game tips from him as well. As you know, Tom has been beating into my head for years, short game, short game, short game. So we're going to get some more tips about that and a whole lot more when TP joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from Dave Stockton Jr. Dave, along with his father, Dave Sr., and his brother Ron are amazing teachers, particularly with putting. So we're going to get a couple of putting tips from Dave. We'll also talk about what to look for on the green so that we can do a better job of reading them. I mean, how many times have you, I know I do this all the time, say, boy, I thought that putt was going to break the other way. Well, we're going to get some tips from Dave for how we can say that less frequently. Plus, we'll hear about the work he's doing with back nine greens because the artificial greens that they're installing are absolutely amazing. So looking forward to having Dave back with me. He'll join me about 30 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from Scott Hamilton. Scott works out of Cartersville Country Club, which is just a little north of me here in Atlanta. He was voted number two, the number two teacher on tour by the players. He's annually ranked among the top teachers in the game by Golf Magazine and Golf Digest as well. We'll talk about some of the guys that he's working with that are out on tour right now. Plus, we'll get some tips from him to ensure that our iron shots are on plane and, and then how to get up and down when we've short-sighted ourselves to an uphill green. Really looking forward to having Scott as part of the show. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight in this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Want to start out by saying hello to my friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence. Hey, fellas. Want to remind you about their great golf shows. 
please check out Mitch's podcast. It is called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can stream online at golftripx.com. It's also available on Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host Darren Bunch, they're going to take you around the U.S. and Canada to some of the great places that you can go stay and play. And they're going to tell you about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Go online and listen to their fantastic podcast at GolfTripX.com. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. You can stream the show live by going online to WLXG.com or download the WLXG app. Features our good friend Perry French in the first segment every week, so you know a lot of great tips and content are coming right at you at the top of that show. Matthew has a lot of other great guests. He's a wonderful friend and a fantastic host. Check out his show. Again, it's called Backspin Golf, and it's on ESPN Radio, WLXG, and WLXG.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade Sim, featuring the new Sim driver, designed with a radical new head shape. To make the driver both fast and forgiving, where you need it most, on the downswing. Sim irons with an improved speed bridge and echo dampening system to deliver a distance iron with forge-like feel. And the Sim Fairway Woods with low CG to help you hit it higher. And the V-Steel Sold to help you launch it even easier out of any lie. Go get fit for Sim throughout the entire bag and experience the effect it's going to have on your entire game. Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information on the all-new Sim family. All right, now back with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Like I said at the top, you can visit him and improve your game at Esplanade Golf and Country Club in Naples, Florida. You can also visit TP and his new indoor facility, which is looking fantastic. You can also download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing and get instruction through there. Or send him a question on his website, tompatry.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter when you're on his website as well. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. He was a two-time first-team All-American at Florida Southern, and he won the Division II National Championship in 1981 and was inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame in 2004. And it's always a privilege getting to have him as part of the show. Hey, TP, how are you, my friend? Christy boy! <laughs> hey, TP, how are you? How are you doing, pal? How are you, man? How's everything <laughs> out there in the uh, in Hotlanta? Uh, everything is fantastic here. You kidding me? Tell me about Naples. I'm telling you, I see, I'm see. i seeing pictures that you're posting uh, on social media about the new indoor facility from what was a uh, once was a garage is now looking like a high-tech studio, my friend. Yeah, we we, um, we, <laughs> we kind of did it out of desperation, Chris, because I'm not even sure where this whole thing is going or where the world is going, so I wanted a little insurance policy so my folks could safely come and, and take a golf lesson and, and maintain a distance if they had to. So we, we gutted the garage, and uh, we uh, created a, a backdrop of curtain we can film against. We put in a track man, a body track, and V1 video, a uh, pretty good-sized flat screen, uh, a state-of-the-art um, fiber-built mat, and uh, all kinds of teaching agent toys. We've got an explainer string trainer in there, and... It's actually pretty cool. I I I kind of did it on a whim, but it came together beautifully, and it's been fun. We've had about uh, in the past two weeks, we've had about fifteen to twenty lessons in there, and and people have really loved it. Actually, I I, I really did it to see if there would be any any pushback to it. You know, I mean, everybody wants to be outdoors in Naples. The weather's beautiful here, but they've loved it. Um, most of them have signed up for a second a second go around in there already. So um, it it's kind of come around 
you know, a little bit out of desperation, a little bit by accident, but it's really, really, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. You mentioned body track. Talk about what, what that is. So body track is a, is a technology. It's a mat that people stand on. And, and to, for a simple explanation, because I'm, I'm not very smart, so I'll give you the simple version. Um, it, it ties into my V1 video. So I can take a video of you, Chris, and have it on screen. And up in the corner of the screen, I can toggle any size I want, make the image bigger or smaller. But in the corner of the screen is in real time, as I swing, as you make the golf swing, I can stop the golf swing at any juncture during the swing. And I can show you both from left to right and from heel to toe and both feet exactly where your weight is and by exact percentages. So exactly, say, say at impact, you are, you know, 70% left and 30% right as far as left to right, but you're, you know, you're 20% in the trail toe and 40% in the lead heel. Uh, a lot of times when people don't make a good weight shift, but think they do, uh, I say to them, you know, where do you think your weight is? And I cover the screen and they say, oh, I think I'm here. And I, I open the screen up and they're like, no, that can't be right. I say, well, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's right. So it can really quantify. I don't really say weight shift anymore. I say weight pressure. Where are you putting the pressure on the ground and where, you, how are you using the ground? Um, so it's really a big help in delivering force um, at, at the impact point and, and through, throughout the golf swing. Well, that leads perfectly into one of the things I wanted to talk with you tonight is using the ground. We're hearing that term, you know, that phrase, I should say, more and more. Using the ground to create more power. Talk about, first of all, let's talk balance, because one of the things that, you know, I'm hearing also is, do we want to be perfectly balanced? Do I want 50-50 on each foot? Do I want to load up my right side for, you know, if I'm a if I'm a right-handed player, and I am, do I want to load up on my right side and then use the ground and release it to get my weight transferred to my left side? Let's talk about how do you find the right balance mix, and then how do you use the ground to create more speed? Well, Chris, first of all, the first premise I always teach people is if you don't start in balance, you can't swing in balance. So the first thing, the first mistake that I see a lot of amateurs making is they start out of balance. So I, I'm a 50-50 guy. I like you perfectly balanced, 50-50. I'm not a, I'm not a preload the right side guy. I'm kind of a 50-50, be centered not only from right to left, but from heel to toe. I want you in perfect balance at the start. And then I think the mistake people make is that, and that's why I started using the term putting pressure in different places versus weight shift, is a lot of people's imper- in interpretation of weight shift is to make this big lateral movement with their upper body to the right. And the trick is, and it is a trick a little bit, how do I get the weight or the pressure into my trail foot and my backswing without moving my head six inches off the ball to the right? And, and, and that, that is a skill. So there's ways I was to do that. I keep people centered and I say to them, or I might even hold their head and I'll say, okay, make body track. Show me you put more pressure as you turn your shoulders while I'm holding your head centered into your right heel. That's amazing how easy they actually do that when you show them how to do it the first time. Um, but I want to get pressure moving into my right side. Which in fact is, is, is a distribution of weight to some degree, but not upper body weight movement where you're way off the golf ball. Because if I get too far off the golf ball with my core or my center and my head, then it, it, the swing becomes very timing based and returning to the impact area consistently. Very much harder to do. Um, you want to use the ground, you want to use ground force, you know, to, to, you know, put pressure on the ground as a, you know, as a way of stabilizing yourself to deliver the shaft, to unwind your body. Um, 
create a pressure shift into your left side eventually. And I, you know, when, when people have bad footwork, Chris, let me ask you a question. You'll understand this perfectly because you, you interview so many great athletes. Tell me who the best running back in your opinion you've ever seen play the game of football is. Walter Payton. Oh, that's a great one, right? Tell me who the best point guard you've ever seen play the game. Walt Frazier. Wow. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. Here's where we're going to have a little trouble. <laughs> best shortstop you've ever seen. Best shortstop you've ever seen. Oh, got to be Nomar Gassiapara. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get sick to my stomach. Okay, I'll give you that one. <laughs> good one, Bert. Very good one. And the best hockey player you've ever seen. I think this is an easy one, really. Mario Lemieux. Okay, so I was going to say Gretzky, but that, that, Mario is a great one. So I want you to think about those four athletes for a minute. Amazing athletes, amazing skills, amazing athleticism. Have you ever seen a great athlete, not a good one, a great athlete with bad footwork? No. No, absolutely not. So body track teaches us great footwork, great movement of pressures throughout the golf swing, great ways to load and unload the body, using the ground, using our feet, understanding what pressure should be at different points in time. And if you can't do that, it's going to be really, really, it's going to be difficult to deliver a really compressed, really, really organized, accelerating blow. Now, are there freak shows in golf? I think there are a lot of freak shows. I think we look at uh, Bubba Watson, who has maybe the worst footwork on the planet. We look at uh, Justin Thomas, who I think has a wonderful golf swing from the waist up, but I, I don't, I'm not particularly big, big fan of his footwork. I'm not a big fan of speed footwork. Okay, so if I wanted examples to show people, I would look at Tiger in between 2000 and 2003. I'd look at Adam Scott at any juncture in his career. Uh, you know, I'd look at some of the old-time great swingers of the golf club, you know, like Julius Boros and people like that, and they had really, really wonderful footwork. Nick Price had great footwork, you know. So I, I think that, as a rule, I want to look at more classic-type swingers and how they use their feet in the ground as opposed to you know, some guys that are freakish that, listen, there's always going to be somebody that violates the rules and finds a way to manipulate the golf club and get away with it. They're just freaks. And I, I think, and listen, nothing against Bubba. I think Bubba's an incredible talent, but I don't think you could teach many people Bubba's golf swing. So I try to teach footwork in a sound manner. I try to explain, you know, pressure and distribution of weight throughout the golf swing, and then Body Track is a great tool to do that. So you mentioned great footwork and 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 I conceptually know what it means when I'm when I'm playing other sports but when we're playing golf what does great footwork to you look like I know you you, you say Bubba Watson looks bad I know Justin Thomas just because he's probably off the ground as much as he's on it what does right. great foot like footwork look like though to me I I break it down this way Chris your lead foot and depending if you're righty or lefty your, your left foot if you're righty your lead foot is what I call the anchor or the brace foot. Um, I want that foot stable. And that's your, that's the point you're trying to go to. That's your, that's your stabilizing forward post. And then your right foot is the pivot foot or the release foot. And that's the one that really gets tricky for people. So most people, when they swing the club, as they start their downswing, they work from heel to toe. If you can picture that, they kind of stand up on their right toe, they, and their right knee goes out towards the golf ball, which causes their hips to move towards the golf ball. And when your hips move towards the ball instead of rotationally, it's a decelerating motion, okay? So if you look at really good swingers of the golf club, the right foot does a couple of different things. It starts relatively flat, 
and then in transition, it, it rolls, or I call it bank to the instep, the banks to the instep, because your right knee is creasing towards your left knee, and then it rolls to the toe. So it goes flat, banks, and rolls. Flat, bank, and rolls to the toe. And when you get that kind of a movement, that allows your right leg and your right knee to work correctly and allows your left hip to clear and accelerate. And now, now you have game on and you got some speed. So the way, the thing I really emphasize is the left foot is planted. It's a plant foot. And the right foot has to be organized and, and sequenced in such a way that allows the things above it, if you will, your right leg and then your hips, your pelvic area, to work correctly to create an accelerating motion. TP, let's switch it up a little bit. Um, I want to get your thoughts. We've actually had live golf the last couple of weeks. Past weekend, we had the match with Tiger, Peyton, and uh, um, against Phil and uh, Tom Brady. The week before that, yeah, we Tom had Brady, the, the tailor-made driving. That's right. And uh, then we had the tailor-made driving relief event with Rory, DJ, Ricky, and Matt Wolf. So, want to get first of all, just give me your thoughts. What did you think about both events? I thought I thought the star the star of the first event was the golf course in Seminole. I think that for the world to get to see that place for the first time on on national TV and a live broadcast. And I've been I've had the real privilege of being there on a couple of different occasions. Bob Ford is a host professional there and, and one of the icons in, in the PGA of America is a good friend of mine and he's had me over a couple of times and I, it's just one of those really special places, Chris, when you walk on the grounds there and you and you, you play one through eighteen, uh the locker room is just a is, is like a mausoleum to golf history. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible experience. It's a great place for, for the world to get to see that piece of property and and some of Donald Ross's incredible design characteristics was really special. I thought the golf was um, extremely boring. I thought I thought DJ put me to sleep. You know, um, I thought Ricky was an absolute superstar. Ricky's got something about him. You know, you know, Chrissy, something about Ricky Fowler. I mean, how do you not like Ricky Fowler? I mean, he's just he puts it great. He smiles. He's charismatic. He, he's California cool, but he, it's not forced in any way. And we'll speak of forced in just a second. He just, and, you know, he, he put a pair of pajamas on. He's pretty cool. You know, I mean, no matter what he does, he's cool. Um, <laughs> I thought, I thought, I thought DJ was beyond boring. I thought Matt Wolf was really interesting. Matt Wolf was a youngster who just, you know, bubbled with enthusiasm, was really, excited just to be there you know he didn't play his best necessarily but he it was fun to watch him up close you know and watch that golf swing which is so unique and i i thought rory tried too hard i think rory tried too hard on camera you know talk too much he and phil should get together they they do wonderful together um and then the second one which we just saw this week matt the match i thought was great you know first of all kudos to all eight of these guys they've raised a tremendous amount of money um on on their own time, you know, and, and entertained us and, and, and gave up, you know, and gave up their own time to do it. So kudos to them for that. Let's not take anything away from what they did. They raised an incredible amount of money in in 36 holes golf. Um, second match at the medalist, I thought was really fun because to watch to watch two amateurs like Peyton and Brady, who obviously are incredible athletes that have done incredible things on the football field. She was the greatest ever. That nervous on the golf course, right? That different on the golf course. These guys are two of the coolest cats in the world behind center. And then put a golf club in their hand and they basically crap their pants. I mean, it's incredible <laughs> how hard, it's really, it's really incredible how hard golf real people, people that, if, if for the amateur out there, that's a great lesson. 
they say to me things like, you know, gee, I was really nervous in the club championship, or I was real, I'm really nervous on the first tee on Saturday morning when people are standing around the first tee. So think about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning putting a golf club in their hand and being as nervous as they were, admittedly as nervous as they were, you know. And, you know, you can say, yeah, well, they were playing with Tiger and Phil Mickelson, but they both know Tiger. They both know Phil Mickelson. They've been to Pebble Beach. They played in the AT&T a bunch of times. But the difference is at the AT&T, maybe they're on screen one time for one shot and don't even and don't know when they're on. They don't even know when they're on and when they're not on. This time, from one tee to 18 green, they knew that the camera was on them every time they put the club in their hands, and and they, and they and they crapped their pants. It was incredible to me that golf affected them that much on in, in that in that on that on that stage. Um, I thought Tiger did an incredible job. We got a glimpse of what he looks like right now. He drove the ball beautifully. Um, he made some really, really nice controlled swings. He looked very comfortable. He looks like his body's in pretty good shape right now. I had a mute. Every time Phil got the mic, I had a mute the thing. I mean, the guy just talks too much. He just doesn't stop talking, man. And I think JT had a great <laughs> comment. You know, you, you never had a, you never had a shortage for information when Phil has the mic. You know, he, he I thought he killed. <laughs> I thought he killed Grady early on, especially in that pitch shot. I think it was only the second or third green when he. You know, Brady said, what do you think? And, and he went into a 20-minute explanation about how to hit that pitch shot. He, he couldn't have handcuffed the guy psychologically any more than he did. Phil, Phil just can't shut up. He just can't, can't keep his mouth shut. But uh, I thought that was really fun to watch, that format with two great athletes in that situation. I thought they got more comfortable as the match went on. You know, they they played they played beautifully as the match played better and better as the match went on. But the first six holes, they were they were kind of lost out there. So I want to get your thoughts on a little further on Phil Mickelson and not necessarily about the trash talking and the talk, but, um, I, I think we got who Phil Mickelson is in a, in a microcosm, you know, on the par four 11th when he drove the green, right? He hit, he hit like, I think three feet from the pin and it and trickled off the back, but, uh, and they ended up making that eagle putt for Brady, one of his, uh, very few, uh, good swings. Phil Mickelson, that's who he is. He's going to go for broke and, you know, regardless of the consequences, we, we saw it or we've seen it several times in the U S open. I mean, I don't know how many other people are like me, but in 2006, I wish Bowen said when, when, uh, when Phil tried to grab the driver out of the bag, I wish he would have broken it over his knee and handed him an iron and said, just get it in the fairway and we win this thing. Um, and then but we saw the meltdown, but that's, you know, Phil's sort of the modern day Arnold Palmer. That's what we love about him and it's what frustrates us about him. What are your thoughts on Phil's game? Well, I, I wouldn't mention Phil Nicholson and Arnold Palmer in the same breath myself, but I understand the comparison. I think I think they were different first of all, it's a different era. Arnold and Phil came from different periods of time. And the other thing about Arnold, listen, Arnold like Phil, in that go go for broke attitude, gave away at least three or four majors and probably five or six or seven or eight more tour wins doing that. And if I were Phil and had Phil's skills and Phil had, listen, my hat's off to Phil Mickelson. He's got incredible skills, incredible. But if I were Phil Mickelson and I understood golf history, and, and I think it's important that as players you do understand golf history, you look at what Arnold Palmer did and you learn from that and you say, listen, yeah, I've got the ability to do that, but I've got to really pick my spots carefully. 
you know, there are certain holes that I just can't do that on. Like 18 at Wingfoot in that U.S. Open you're talking about, that wasn't the time to do it. When previously for 17 holes, you'd hit two fairways all day and still had a chance to win. I mean, you know, and, and shame on Bones for not snapping that driver over his knee. Um, so I, I don't think Phil, if Phil has a fault, I don't think he's studied golf history enough because Arnold could have been a great learning tool for him. Tom, let's let's get some playing lessons for our listeners. And as I always say, you drill into my head, short game, short game, short game all the time. And I want to talk about that because one thing that I see tour players do that's different than my buddies and I do when they've got a, a wedge in their hands, their, their stance starts to narrow as the club gets higher, right? As the, as a loft on the, on the club gets higher. I tend to, and I know my buddies do the same. We have the same stance almost regardless of what club is in our hand. Talk about why we should be creeping in a little as the loft goes up. Well, let's, let's go back and quote the great Harvey Pennick who said, big swing, big setup, little swing, little setup. So one of the things you're going to do when you hit a pitch shot off of a tight line, for example, Chris, is you want to minimize risk. So you want fewer moving parts, you want stability, you want quietness, you want stable. So, you know, if you tell the brain, listen, I've got a little tiny stance here, it's like telling the brain, stay centered, don't move, okay? And when you have to find the bottom of your swing on a very precise location in pristine contact with a lofted club, okay, Staying more centered is a pretty good start. Second thing you do is you grip down the golf club. Seve told me one time if he could, if he could under pressure, if he could hold the club anywhere while he hit a pitch shot when he was under pressure choking, he would grab it by the hosel, which I started laughing. Can you imagine grabbing the club on the hosel? You'd be bending over to your ankles. So Seve would hit a lot of those little pitch shots and his right index finger would be actually touching the shaft of the club. He'd be that far down the club. Um, and then take a lesson from Steve Stricker, who hits a lot of his pitch shots with very little wrist break or wrist hinge, both back and through. So he's got quiet hands, narrow stance, grip down on the club. Those are all insurance policies to create, you know, great contact. So Mr. Penick's quote is right on. And if people would take that lesson from Mr. Penick, little Steve Stricker, little Seve down the grip, and a narrow stance, I think they'd be a lot more successful around the putting surface. Let's talk about the in-between club shots, Tom, because um, I think that's where a lot of us struggle. We may be, you know, let, let's say we hit our sand wedge 90 yards. You know, we're 95. Okay. We hit a 95 hours. Well, you know, if I lean on this a little bit, I probably can get <laughs> it there. You know, I may be, yep. you know, my, my, uh, my, uh, my gap wedge might be, you know, 105 yards. And now, you know, I'm just, I'm sort of in between. What's the best thing to do when we're, when we're thinking, do I lean on this or do I choke down on that? Chris, have you ever played darts in a bar? Of course. Okay, good. Do you, do you, when you play darts in a bar, do you wind up like Louis Tiant and throw it at the wall? <laughs> no. No. Okay. So you got the point, right? So I, I equate in the between shots to playing darts. Okay, it's a very controlled, a compact motion. Back to the Seve rule, I might go down the shaft a little bit. Not quite like pitching greenside. I might not narrow my stance that much, but I might narrow my stance up a little bit, and I'll make very abbreviated motions. So I'll be more in control, more compact, if you will, 
and I'll probably take one more club than trying to lean on something and make a moderate tempo swing to fight the ball down and control the trajectory as well as the spin and any, and any, any side misses. Okay. So one of the, but that, that's all technical information. But the main reason, the number one reason why amateurs don't hit those shots, those in-between shots very well is when they go to the range, they hit full shots on a range. So I try to personally, and I try to teach this to my students as well, when I practice on the range, I make sure that during my wedge play segment of my practice, I pick out a target that's X distance. And let's say it's, let's say it's 100 yards, okay? And I comfortably hit my pitching wedge full 120 yards. I'll take a pitching wedge and hit 50 or 60 balls to the 100-yard target with a pitching wedge, which on full swing is a 120-yard club, and I'll practice hitting partial shots. I'll practicing partial shots with a 50, uh, my 54-degree wedge, which is about a, a 105 club from me on the golf course. And on the range, I'll hit that 54 club to a 75-yard target. Okay? So I practice hitting partial shots because, you know what, I know I'm going to have them on the golf course, and I don't want to lean on a wedge because a wedge, a wedge is a dartboard club. It's like throwing darts. I want to create better dispersion, tighter dispersion, better ball fight, better contact quality for spin, and I want to control the trajectory in case I have any elements like wind involved, especially in Florida and eastern Long Island where I played some of my golf growing up in New York. So I think the number one reason people don't do that well is they never practice doing that. They never practice that on a range. Well, TP, before I let you go, and thank you very much for those tips, um, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with how, you know, how the uh, indoor facility is rounding out, the things that you're doing, get some instruction from you, even if they're not down in Naples, Florida, and also follow you on social media. Well, Chris, more importantly, before we do that, I want to say congratulations to you for your, uh, your mention in the top 50 podcast on the air. Hey, you. you don't. You don't talk about that at all. I think that's an incredible honor. It's, it's a tribute to you and all the hard work you've done. It's a tribute to you for having unbelievable guests on, like the fellows you have on behind me tonight are two of the greatest in the game as far as I'm concerned. How you get two guys like that on a podcast is incredible to get them to give up their time. Um, you have so many great people on this show, and, and, and that, that recognition is, is well-deserved and, and something that you should be very, very proud of. And I'm happy for you, pal, as a friend of mine. Nah, I appreciate you very much. I am very honored and humbled by that. And and uh, to your point, the reason why it's there is because of guys like you and Dave Stockton Jr. and Scott Hamilton and, and all the wonderful guests that I am very privileged to have as part of the show. So um, thank you very much. That uh, means a great deal to me, TP. Let let our listeners know. How can they follow you, my friend? Chris, I'm, I'm on all the, all the social media platforms, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, two Facebook pages, my own website at TomPatry.com. I'm getting ready here to get on the road soon. I'm going to be uh, in uh, Carmel, Indiana at Prairie View one week a month. I'm hopefully going to be, fingers crossed, depending on what happens here, one week a month at Saratoga National in Saratoga, New York, which is a wonderful spot. People can come and take a golf school there. Um, I think I'm going to circle back to Naples, Chris, which I've never done one week a month. But I'd love to see my wife a little bit in the next five months and uh, do some teaching in my indoor studio. And then I got a few guest schools around the country. So uh, it should be another active winner for the old guy. Uh, there'll be a lot of miles logged in the, uh, in the white beast driving up and down <laughs> highways all around the country. So somebody's going to find me dead on the side of the road someday. But until then, I'm going to keep on going. 
There you go. Never. Yeah. TP, I can't thank you enough for your time again tonight. Look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks in between now and then. Stay safe and healthy, my friend. My best to Mrs. Patrick as well. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Chris, we, we all love you. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Take care, uh, TP. Bye-bye, buddy. That's a great Tom Patry, P-A-T-R-I, TomPatry.com is the is his website. And then, like you said, he's all over social media. He is a, a fantastic instructor and a better guy. And I uh, always learn something every time he's a part of the show. And I think tonight was about the 33rd time he's been here. So there's been a lot of learning coming from TP to me. So look forward to catching up with him again soon, folks. Before I get to my next guest, Dave Stockton Jr., I want to give a shout out to our friends over at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micro-manufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll find Ben Hogan uh, Golf Equipment only online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there to learn about their great products and their great prices. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back in making his ninth appearance with me is Dave Stockton Jr. Let me remind you about Dave's background. He's from Redlands, California. Like his father and his grandfather, he was an All-American golfer at the University of Southern California. He joined what is now the Corn Ferry Tour in 1993 and won twice during his rookie season at the Nike Connecticut Open and the Nike Hawkeye Open. He went through Q School in 1994 and earned his tour card, finished 96 on the PGA Tour money list that season. From 1993 to 2006, he had six top 10 finishes on the Corn Ferry Tour and 13 top 10 finishes on the PGA Tour. Following his days on tour, he spent a couple of years as a commentator for the USA Network. He's now one of the top instructors on the planet. And since he recently turned 50 about a year or so ago, I am hoping very hard to see him out on the Champions Tour again this season. And I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dave, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Thanks for having me on again. Ah, it's always great having you here, Dave. So, uh, before we get into all the golf stuff, Dave, I got to get your thoughts, uh, on your USC Trojans. Are, are we going to see USC football this season? What do you think is going to happen? I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will. And, um, you know, we had a, we started out with a bad recruiting season, but then we ended with a flourish. I guess we, got a top uh top five or top six class after everything's said and done so um you know we'll see what happens you got to turn those four and five star guys into into absolute studs and hopefully we can do that but uh yeah i miss miss seeing sports it's uh it's been you know difficult for everyone you know i don't think you realize how much you um appreciate and have sports is such a main part of people's lives when you lose it and you can't see it and uh you know just like this last even watching the you know the last dance michael jordan and the bulls and you know that was so much fun to watch and everybody just you know couldn't wait for the new episodes to come out and we're just so sports hungry right now so hopefully they will hopefully they will be playing 
Speaking of live sports, we, we've gotten a little bit in golf the last couple of weeks. What are, what are your thoughts about what you saw from, uh, from, you know, the guys a couple of weeks ago in the, with the match between Rory and DJ and Ricky and, and Matt Wolf and then the match over, uh, over the weekend, this weekend? Well, they were really polar opposites. Um, you know, it was a limited exposure, uh, with DJ and, and Rory and, and Matt Wolf. And I mean, the, there wasn't a lot of talk going on between the two. There wasn't really much trash talking. And, um, you know, that, so it was, it was a, I mean, it was a phenomenal cause and it was great that they did that donating their time and, and, and to do that, come out and play when, you know, it was clear that, you know, I mean, I believe DJ when he said he'd only hit balls like twice since the stoppage because he was a bit rusty, but, uh, um, you know, it was just, it was fun seeing that golf course for the first time. I've never, I've never played Seminole. I want to play it someday. And, um, you know, I look forward to that. But, uh, this last Sunday with <laughs> Tiger and Phil and Peyton and, and Brady, that was hilarious. And then to have, you know, Barkley doing the commentating, who's just a, he's a piece of work. He's awesome. Um, and then having JT out there commentating, you know, if, if for some reason he ever wants to hang up the clubs, he'd be, he'd be fun to listen to. Uh, I thought it was great. It was, it wasn't boring. It was exciting. You know, they, they, uh, and they dealt with horrific weather. I'm laughing sitting in San Diego and sunny skies and 72 degrees and they're, they're in a downpour. So it was pretty funny, but the fact they played in it raised 20, what was it? $20 million. I thought that was phenomenal. Right. And, and, um, you know, we saw good shots. We saw bad shots. We, we heard, uh, digging going on, you know, digs between the players and, and commentators and, and, uh, you know, it was just a, it was a real, uh, enjoyable, uh, uh, afternoon to watch the golf and, and, you know, obviously a little more exciting. Um, and Peyton was hilarious. I mean, he's, he's just a character. So, you know, you had a lot of characters that had a lot of personality come out and, and, um, you know, it was, I think everybody enjoyed it. One of the things, Dave, that we saw in both events, were guys wearing shorts. I know yep. that uh, the tour has sort of, you know, loosened up a little bit. They they can do it in pro-ams. They can do it in some practice rounds. Are, are, are we inching closer, do you think, that guys will be allowed to wear shorts on tour, at least in the summertime? I mean, I'd like to see that. I think it, it I think you'll have guys that would, would never wear shorts. Um, but I don't know. I was on the PGA Tour p- player, uh, policy board in the nineties when we passed the we we got approved for caddies to wear shorts. And Fincham was dead set against it. He did not want that happening and and I just I remember I I, I said, hey look, we watched the US amateur and there's caddies and and not only are the players in shorts, but the caddies are in shorts and nobody cares. That's the USAM. It's a big tournament. No one talks about it. And these caddies back then, I mean, you know, we had some tournaments where we played in some serious heat, like Kingsmill, uh, in, uh, Kingsmill in Virginia. That was always a, in Williamsburg, Virginia, um, was summertime tournament, usually July. 
And I remember one year it was a heat index of 139 during a round that I was playing in. Wow. Wow. And that was when caddies had to wear had to wear pants. They couldn't wear shorts. They're carrying a fifty pound fifty pound bag on their shoulder, and we had a, a caddy go down. He almost died. Um, so we got the caddies approved to wear shorts. I'm watching those guys, you know, the last couple of weeks on TV with shorts. They, they're still professionals, and I think that you know the old. I think you you'll have the. I think over time, I think shorts are going to be okay. Um, I would have no problem with touring pros wearing shorts. Um, I mean, I teach in shorts at my club, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, proponent. I'm a, a big believer in shorts that it, you know, not wearing anything wacky. You know, you look, make, look at something that looks nice and, uh, I don't think there'd be any problem. I mean, um, they're athletes and, uh, just cause they have shorts on doesn't mean they're not, you know, they're not an athlete. You say Tim Finchin was dead set against the caddies wearing shorts. Why? He was. He did not like the idea. He was more old school, uh, did not want that. But, you know, we, I mean, they say it's the players tour. It kind of is. But the, the, there's guys running it, obviously running the show. And, but that was something with what happened with, and you don't see us having events now. You don't see tour events where you've got, Heat indexes anywhere near what Kingsmill, uh, was. Um, you know, they've done a really good job with the scheduling and everything else and, uh, playing tournaments where it's not just really brutal heat. Um, but, uh, yeah, he didn't want it, but we got it approved. And cause I mean, one of the big things was, you know, Caddy dies out there carrying a bag cause we weren't going to let him wear shorts and the how hot it was. It just, you didn't want that lawsuit. So. I think that there were several factors with caddies going down and, um, you know, and now we're to where players can wear shorts and practice rounds and everything else and pro-ams. And I think that's great. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's hot. So I think, you know, yeah. if they did a thing where it was summertime, if it's summertime, I, I mean, personally, I think if they're going to do it, they're going to just, Hey, you can do it. If you want to do it in the wintertime, whatever you, you want to wear shorts and freeze, go ahead. Um, but I'd, I'd kind of leave it up to the players. I mean, the players are independent contractors and, you know, it's, I think with the door opening to wearing shorts in practice rounds of pro-ams, I think it, it angles us towards that, uh, to be able to wear shorts in tournaments as well. So speaking of the tour, are we going to get to see you out on the champions tour this season? (laughs) I heard your little intro with me. Um, you know, I played an event when I was 50 and then I played an event this last summer, uh, when I turned 51 and, um, you know, I came to the realization, Chris, that I am a really good member guest partner and, uh, <laughs> I am. Yeah. I, I, you know, all those guys I played with on tour, they kept working on their games and grinding and I, I wanted to be around my family more and, and, uh, you know, I, I went away from it. And when you go away from this game for the amount of time I did, I left the tour when I was 36 years old. And, um, you know, I, to just think I could go back out after practicing and, and handle the heat and play and, and the pressure, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I struggled with it. And then, you know, I, I, my category is so far down. Um, 
that the only way for me to get in is to get exemptions because I'm not going to get in off my my number from from being a tour player. Um, and so I don't want to take a spot away from somebody that really deserves it, that's grinding, trying to make it. Um, if I go out and Monday qualify for one, that's a whole other story. But I'm between teaching and and designing synthetic turf greens for back nine greens. I'm I'm really busy and and I like my I like my free time to go play with my buddies and whether that's at Goat Hill Park in Oceanside or going to Del Mar Country Club or go play you know one of these other golf courses. I I'm gonna play in a I'm gonna play in a, a pro am over in Ireland next April. I'm taking a uh, three buddies that'll be my amateur partners and it's um I don't have all the details yet but uh I'm looking forward to going and playing in that next April. So I have time to work on my game between now and then and uh and the the member a couple of member guests that I play in a year. So I'm working on getting my handicap up a little more. It's it's still too low. They have me as a plus one point seven and uh I don't really like that. I don't like giving those shots away, but I'm laughing. My dad was just telling me he's playing more golf now here at Redlands Country Club and and uh He's a four handicap, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me! You know, you're cleaning up. He goes, I'm taking their money. I go, a four handicap no chipping pot like he does. Yeah, I go. He breaks his age every time he goes out, so he's having fun. So let's talk about a little bit of the teaching that uh, that you and your family do. Like I say, you're one of the great instructors anywhere on the planet. Um, and I want to talk about both uh, what you're doing with back nine greens here in a minute, but I want to talk about reading greens. Because that's mm-hmm. an area that, that I struggle with, Dave. I, I, too often in the course of a round, I'm looking at a putt that I think is breaking a little left to right and it actually breaks right to left. And, and now I've missed it by a foot or two. What are some of the things? What are some of the keys that we should be looking for on the greens to help us do a better job of reading the break? Sure. So when you play, do you ride a cart or walk? Uh, typically ride a cart. Okay. So when people ride carts, you're pulling up to the right or left of the green or behind the green. You're not pulling up into the front and walking on it. So that being the case, when you're in a cart and you get off, you get out of the cart and you're walking to the green, you're typically walking uh downhill or not from the low part. You're coming from, you know, higher up odds are. And so you when you when you when you walk, the opposite of that is when you're walking a course and you walk up on the front of the green. You have a much better feel for where water's draining, where the high and low area is. Um, and so when I walk on a green, I'm immediately looking between my ball and the hole, where would water drain if I poured water on the screen? And you're going to know exactly where water is going to drain. It's always going to drain off a certain direction, um, sometimes multiple directions. But in what relates, in relating to your ball, and the hole, that's where you want to focus and, and where water would drain. As soon as you know which way that is, you go to the low side of the putt. So far enough back, let's say you have a 20 footer, you'd go, uh, between the, the distance. So you'd go 10 feet and you'd go to the low side and be looking probably anywhere from 10 to 20 feet away from the putt, that far away from your line and looking at it from the low side. And that's like reading a book, a newspaper, a magazine. We have it slightly angled towards us when you read something. Everybody does, right? And so when you're reading a putt from there, 
from the low side, that's where I spend my time, I'll break a pot up into thirds. And I'll basically, that first third, okay, I see it. I'm not too focused on that first third because the ball's moving pretty quick. I'm not going to worry about the break too much in the first third because it won't break as much with the speed of the balls coming off the putter. I see what's going on in the middle of the putt, that, that middle third, and I'm paying attention there, but my main focus is the last third. As the ball's slowing down towards the hole, it's going to tend to be influenced more by whatever the break is. So if you have a putt that, let's say you have a putt that has a ton of break in the beginning, but it's pretty straight the last half or the last third of the putt, I'm going to play less break on that putt because when I first strike it, it's not going to be affected by the break as much because of the pace that I'm rolling the ball to get to the hole. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then the opposite of that, if you're putting from, you know, you have a ton of break that last third, but not as much in the beginning, you've got to get it out there for that last third as the ball's dying. It's going to take that break and go in. Most people are too ball oriented. They're focusing on the ball. They're focusing on their line that they want to start it on. And they're, what they're not doing is they're not visualizing the ball going in the hole as they're, as they're setting up and getting comfortable. And it's such a visual game. It's such a, it's about visualization and feel. And you don't get any feel if you're not, if you're not visualizing what you see this ball doing, you're not going to be, um, feeling it. And then if you're not feeling it, it's kind of a slippery slope where, yeah, just negative thoughts come in. Don't do what I did the last hole, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's just not a, uh, to me, putting, and I obviously I growing up watching my dad putt and make everything. And so to me, just putting simple, putting's easy. And, uh, mm. because, because that's how I was taught. Well, why is it so simple? Well, you're not going to hit it OB. You don't have to get it airborne. You know what club you're using every single time. And it's not about being exact. It's not about being perfect. Like, and, and that's proven nowadays. They got all that great, uh, stuff they can do on the telecast where they can show you this, the straight line from the guy's putt to the hole and then the curve for the break that the putt is going to have. The player's getting ready to play. And more times than not, he'll play it somewhere between the two lines and it'll still go in the hole. Well, why is that? Speed dictates line. There's not one line that's correct and the rest are all wrong. You know, there's some putts you can be more aggressive on. You'll take a little less break, be a little firmer with it. You get some putts you need to be real careful with. You don't want it getting away from you. You got to be a little more tentative, so you play a little more break and you'll, and you diet in that way. So it's never about being exact. And when I started caddying for my dad on tour when I was 12, I, I learned to read greens really well as a kid. And so I'd be over his shoulder reading putts with him and he'd say, Hey, what do you think, Junior? And I'd say, Oh, it's two or three balls outside right, or it's a ball or two outside left. It was never exact because he's going to roll at the pace he wants to roll it and he's going to commit to that. But it could be any one or any number of those. And anytime I, it's funny, anytime I play where I have a caddy in the group, I won't have them read my putts because I, I don't need the help. They can focus on the other guys. But I'll hear them say it's right edge or it's a ball out. And to me, that's so exact. And that almost puts pressure on someone because, God forbid, if you, if it's the edge and you get it a little outside, it's not going in. And you kind of think that way. If you, if you think that way at all, you're going to struggle with putting. But if, you, on the other hand, you say, 
Oh, it's about, it's about, it's about the edge. It could be just inside or a little outside, depending on your pace. Kind of gives you the freedom to commit to what you want to do with it. If you feel good, you'll be more aggressive, whatever, but you're committing to a certain speed on a putt. Because that's why I always joke, I always have fun with people that have a line on their ball. And I say, you know, what, what, what's more important, the right line or the right speed? And they'll say, oh, well, the right speed. I'm like, exactly. Why do you have a line on your ball then? They just start laughing. You know, and some of that's them will a say, good oh, point. Both, yeah, some of them will say, well, both are important. Oh, I said, yeah, but there's one that's more important than the other. And they come to a realization that I'm right in that it's speed dictates line. It's not the other way around. And, and so, you know, when you see people with a line on their ball, those are typically people that they saw someone on tour do it or they're real mechanical. People that are really mechanical players will tend to use a line. The people that are field players like myself, my dad, um, they'll get up and just, they'll roll it. You know, they'll get away from, you know, worrying about the ball. And, and just get up and visualize the ball going in. Cause the putter is the one club in the bag. I mean, you get to cheat with that. It's got a flat grip on it. Every other grip in our bag's round. You put your hands on your putter. You know exactly where that face is aimed. And that putter face is going to line up where your eyes are looking. And if you're visualizing out, I heard the, the, the dart analogy earlier with your previous guest. And I use that as well when, when you're, when you're, throwing darts, are you looking at the, the, the dartboard or are you looking at the dart in your hand when you're throwing it? And people just laugh. And I'm looking at the dartboard. I'm like, okay, well, where's our, what's our dartboard here between the ball and the hole? They go, the hole. So where should your eyes be looking? Out at the hole. And it just kind of gets people away from being so focused on the little white ball that torments everybody so much and thinking about where they don't want it to go and instead of Letting your eyes, I've, I've never set up on a putt and never been uncomfortable in my life. And, and that, that's always been the case. I've never been uncomfortable on a putt in my entire life. So I, you know, and people look at me like, how's that? And my dad's the same way. He's never, he's played a lot more golf than I have. And, um, he's never been uncomfortable either. The reason why is we let our eyes set our feet. We'll come in with a slightly open stance with the feet close together. We put that putter down behind the ball. In dad's case, he puts the putter in front of the ball and looks out and sets his feet as he's looking out. And then he comes back, puts the putter on the other side, takes one more look and goes. And I always put the putter just shy of the ball. And when I put it behind the ball, I'd look out at the hole as I set my feet and I'd enjoy, I'd enjoy the look. So my dad would always tell me, enjoy the look. Just enjoy the look. So I'm enjoying the look of visualizing the ball going in. So I'm visualizing what a positive image of what I see this ball doing. When my eyes come back, the putter's gone. Um, another Is example that right? of that on tour. What's that? I said that's right. You so you're looking at the hole the whole time. You're not you're not fixed on the ball when you when you're making your yeah. stroke. You're looking at the hole. No, when I when I'm making the, when the putter start when my eyes come back from the hole, my homework is done. So as my eyes are coming back, I'm starting a forward press. And my eyes come back, the putter's going. Cause I'm not, I'm not even worried about, I know the putter's lined up where I want. Another guy that does that and he has a completely different stroke than me and he's a very good putter, Brant Snedeker. You watch him, that putter, that, those eyes come back and that putter's gone. 
because the fastest way to screw up somebody is to make them stare at that ball for a long time and think, oh, get my face turned a little here and get my think about this and think about that. It, it just doesn't work. <laughs> it's, a, it's a recipe for disaster. Dave, one more before I let you go. And I know you're doing some great stuff with Pac-9 Greens and some of the stuff that you guys are out there creating is absolutely <laughs> off the chain. My goodness, some of that stuff Thank is you. outstanding. Talk about that work. You know, it's 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 a I love it. Um I was a I was a client before I was a partner in the company and I had them do a green for me and and got rid of my grass. I water bill kept going up and I couldn't believe the quality of the product of what they did and and I told the owner I said these guys are craftsmen. That's what they are. They do this. He goes, "Absolutely." And what he calls what we do is golf art because we came in when I got on board with him, we, we created the luxury division and which is just the, you know, it's the white turf bunkers. People don't realize it's white turf. It's not sand. It's white turf because, and they're, and they're like, huh, why wouldn't you not use sand? Well, one sand is messy. And then it's, you know, one reason people go synthetic is because they want less maintenance and they want it to look good year round. Well, that's what this does. And, I mean, I'm having so much fun putting these greens in. Um, you know, we had a little stoppage there for a while with this uh, coronavirus and, um, but we're, we're moving and shaking right now and, and busy and it's great doing them all over the country. And, um, I, I love doing it. I mean, and the fact that, uh, we're really thrilled, you know, we did that pop stroke, that, that restaurant down in Port St. Lucie, Florida with the, the two 18 hole putting courses that we put in for them. And, 53,000 square foot of turf and tiger saw it and he bought 50% of the company and they're going to be going in around the, around the country now. And that's a, that's pretty powerful. The fact that, you know, he did that and he believed in what we did and saw the concept and said, this is, you know, this is phenomenal. So, uh, we're looking forward to working with them and doing those as well. And, uh, but I, I love putting them in people's backyards and, it's funny since this whole thing hit where everybody's been locked down at home, we've been getting more and more people calling, wanting to have this at their house because God forbid something like this ever happens again. At least you got a cool putting green or a par three in your backyard, whatever we, whatever you have, um, something fun to do as a, as a, with a family and, you know, whatever. It's just, it's, it's a real treat. Um, you know, if people want to look at back nine greens on social media, and they can look at Back Nine Greens, or they can also go to the uh, Instagram page, uh, BNG Luxury Back Nine Greens Luxury Division. Um, and obviously, I post my greens and stuff on on mine as well uh, with Back Nine Greens. And uh, and my Instagram is uh, David B Stockton underscore. So not sure why I did it that way, but that's how it was done years ago. So, um, but David B. <laughs> Uh, Stockton underscore, and then on Twitter, I'm uh, uh, DSJR1. Just it's, fun. I really enjoy doing it. And Chris, I appreciate you having me on, and you're awesome. I appreciate you, my friend. It's always a good time when you're a part of the show. I hope uh, you'll come back and join me again soon. A lot of great instruction that we haven't tapped into tonight, and uh, obviously getting to follow up on the work you're doing at Back 9 Greens, but uh, always a pleasure when you're here, my friend. I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me on, and I love the work you do as well. And uh, stay safe and uh, be well.
Same to you, Dave. All the best to you and your family, my friend. I look forward to catching up soon. You got it. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. See you, Dave. That's a great Dave Stockton Jr. And a, and a wonderful follow on social media. And I'm telling you, these back nine greens are absolutely stunning. You look at the luxury division and some of the things that they do. There was a setup that they put together that looked like uh, the, you know, the cabins at Augusta National and, and the greens. And uh, it was absolutely stunning. And then uh, to see some of the other things that they're doing and then, you know, following him for, for all the great putting tips that Dave does and he and his father, Dave Sr. Great, great folks, great family. Look forward to catching up with Dave again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Scott Hamilton, I want to give another shout out to our new sponsor, the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop Community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts. The resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now joining me here on Next on the T is Scott Hamilton. Let me give you some background on Scott. He's from Carthage, Missouri. He joined the PGA of America back in 1989. Started out his career as an assistant pro at Harbortown Golf Links in Hilton Head. In 1993, he moved over to Hague Point, designed by our good friend Reese Jones. In 1993, he became the head golf professional at Cartersville Country Club, which is just a few minutes north of me here in Atlanta. Scott has been named one of the top 100 instructors in the game by Golf Magazine every year since 2015. He's also been recognized as one of the top instructors by Golf Digest. He was 26th on their list this year. Scott works with several players out on the PGA Tour, including guys like Boo Weekly, Chris Kirk, Aaron Badalay, Brendan Todd, Harris English, Joe Durant, and Hudson Swafford. In 2017, Scott was named the PGA of America Georgia Section Teacher of the Year, and in 2015, he was selected as the number two coach on the tour by the PGA Tour players, and I'm thrilled to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. How you doing, man? I'm fantastic. How are you? How are things going for you? Oh, good. Just kind of been working a lot with this Corona deal. I've got a lot of people coming in town, so not traveling much, but working, working a lot here at the house. To that point, when you, when you are sort of in, in this sort of lockdown mode, do, do things change for you, Scott? There's a way that you have to do instruction. I mean, most of the folks that I talk to that are, that are teaching the game are very hands on. It's, moving the hands around in the grip it it's touching the the shoulders or the hips or the head does it change now 
You know, I've never been that touchy-feely of an instructor, so it really hadn't affected me much. You know, I might reach down and grab the shaft every once in a while, pull it around or something, but I'm I'm normally not somebody that's up there moving your body around that much. It doesn't. I never really thought I got much out of that when I ever did that to people. So, Scott, with with the with the state starting to open up, Georgia's been open now for almost a month, I guess, at this point. Um, you're starting to see people at the at the country club come back and play. Is, is play starting to pick up out of Cartersville Country Club, and are players starting to fill up your uh, whether it's uh, the practice tee or starting to fill up your tee schedule? You know, it's interesting. My little club. I've been there since said in the intro since '93. Our club never closed down, and we never closed the range. I mean, we you know obviously single player per cart close the clubhouse down. You'd have to go knock on the door to get a cocktail or some lunch or something. But, you know, we averaged about, I don't know, 10, 12,000 rounds a year. And I mean, we've probably already played more rounds this year. We have absolutely been slammed. We, we had to go out, you know, our cart fleet was, I don't know, 65 or something. We had to go get another 10 or 11 golf carts just to handle the flow. So, I mean, we've literally been slammed since this thing started just because it was the only thing to do. I think we've sold three or four memberships during this Corona thing just because people are, it's the only thing you could do outside. So, you know, our play has never backed off. We were never closed one day. So, unlike a lot of places, you know. Scott, I got to get a story from you because it was hard for me to believe it when I was doing the research on, on you. And, I, and I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but for my audience who may not have heard it, back in 2010 during the PGA's Pro Assistant Tournament at uh, Cherokee Town and Country Club, you made not one, but two holes in one in the same <laughs> round on the fourth and the 14th holes. And I read that the odds on that are 67 million to one. Take yeah, us back to what that, that was like. Ah, uh, you know, stupid. It was, you know, I always laugh. I'm like, that's really what I wasted my Powerball went on with that thing, you know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I was just, it was a, some kind of pro pro tournament and I was playing with, uh, I think my head pro or sister pro then and, you know, I've always been a pretty good iron player. I think I've had like eight or nine hole-in-ones, but, you know, the first hole was a pretty short little hole, and I just kind of hit it in there and skipped it in the hole. But the second one was legit, I think, and I hit like a five or six iron in there. But, you know, I just hit two straight shots, and they both went in. That's crazy. I think the purse, you know, a typical club pro deal, I won all the skins that day, like every skin. And I think I won a couple thousand dollars in skins. And I think the first place in the thing might have been a thousand bucks with the team splitting it or something. So it was unbelievable. Yeah, crazy. So with that amount of money and two hole in ones, I'm I'm imagining drinks were on you pretty heavily that day. You know, the the lucky thing about that is that open bar after the tournament didn't cost me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, good for you. Scott, I want to talk about some of the guys that you're working with out on tour. And one of them is, is Aaron Baddeley. And, and Aaron's a guy who was at the very top of the game from probably 2006 to 2011 and sort of went through a lull for a few seasons, but really seems to have gotten his game back in form. Last year was a, was a really good year for him. Talk about what you've been working on with Aaron that's been able to get him back on track. <laughs> 
Well, the interesting thing is I heard that preview. I, I really don't teach many of those guys. I haven't taught Aaron in uh, two, a couple of years now. Uh, you know, and that's the problem with like my website. I don't ever update it. I normally just do Instagram. But yeah, I, I did teach Aaron back and kind of got him back. He lost his card. And the, the last year he won was the year that I taught him when he won the Alabama tournament. I think he had six or seven top tens that year. And he just, and I'm really still really good friends with Aaron, but I haven't taught him in a couple of years. It was, it was kind of, I'll go through my list of who I'm teaching now to see maybe you can ask about some of those guys. So I pulled up the sheet here. I, I still teach Joe Durant. I teach Matt Every, Tom Hogue, uh, Chris Kirk, Hank Leviotti, Trey Molnax. Stallings, Scott Stallings, Hudson Swafford, Peter Uline, Boo. So those are the main guys that I'm teaching right now. I teach uh, Jane Park on the LPGA, Brooke Pancake, who's been on maternity leave for a couple of years. She's just had a couple of children over the last couple of years. Uh, I teach oh, Jillian Hollis, that's a rookie on the LPGA this year. And then I teach some corn fairy guys. You know, I teach uh, JT Griffith out of Atlanta that played at Tech and uh, I'm not sure who else I got on the corn ferry right now but those are the main guys that I, I haven't taught Aaron in a couple of years to be honest with you. So. Well talk about Joe Durant. Joe D is a guy that you know I've been following for, for several years and um, uh, you know, I, you know, when he's played here in Atlanta, when he's been over at Augusta National I've walked some of the practice rounds with Joe D. He's a guy that uh, had a near miss oh, yeah. here at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic, you know, finished tied for second behind Scott McCarron last year. Talk about what you're doing with him. Uh, you know, the thing about Joe D, I, I started helping him when he was, you know, when the guys when they're like 47 or 8 get, get to go play, I think he was 48, they get to go play on the web again. It was the web then, I think. And he and he and Boo Weekly are cousins somewhere or another. So, you know, what was interesting about Joe is, I mean, anybody that knows Joe, he's the most gracious guy in the world. Like, I absolutely love Joe Durant. And uh, he he ran into me, I think we we're in Mississippi somewhere or something. And he goes, I emailed you on your website to see if I could get a lesson. I'm like, oh, my God, like, get the phone number from Boo. Like, I never looked at that stuff that much, you know. But I started teaching him then and, and he got a tour card one more year after that, got exempt through the, through the web. Then he went back and, you know, then he turned 50. Then he just went out and played on the senior tour the bulk of the time. And, you know, it's had a great career. He's like a boo. You know, he's such a tremendous ball striker. Uh, and, you know, with him, it was some basic stuff. Like he had the club two vertical going back and we just shallowed out and he kind of, we do the same thing. The thing is, when you teach the, some of the best players in the world, it's really you're more calibrating those guys than you are teaching them all the time. And with Joe, what we try to do with him is just trying to keep him in the same shape. You know, the guy is such a good ball striker. He'll get a little steep and get the club going across the ball, kind of get his pelvis working in underneath him. And, you know, we'll do a couple little adjustments to him, and he's back off to the races. But, I mean, the guy's a legendary driver of the golf ball. And, uh, the one thing I think I probably helped Joe with the most, we were down in New Orleans when he had his tour card the last time. And anybody that knows anything about Joe knows he's an unbelievable ball striker and, and always kind of struggled with his putting similar to Boo. And in New Orleans, I'm like, and this is years ago, I'm like, Joe, go get one putter, like a two ball putter, putt cross handed and don't change one thing for like 
three months and let's see what happens. And after he did that, because he was the same guy, different putter every week, different setup every week, cross-handed, you know, regular grip. And once he kind of settled in and just in hunkered down on the cross-handed with the two ball, he was off to the races with, and a guy that hits it that good really doesn't have to putt that great, you know, and he really putted good a couple of years ago on the senior tour or the champions tour. I was sitting in the clubhouse and they were ran the strokes game putting in the senior tour up and he was leading. I picked my phone up immediately and called him. Oh my God, you're leading the strokes game. And in typical Joe fashion, his first reply to me was, well, that tells you how bad they putt out here. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. And Scott, he's a, he's as, as you mentioned, you're you're only calibrating those guys. To to me, like when I think about, you know, someone playing that plays at the level that I do and I'm somewhere, you know, twelve, thirteen handicap, you know, for for someone like me, a a uh, an adjustment can have a huge impact on my game. For for the guys yeah. out on tour and the ladies out on tour, it's gotta be just such a fine line. I mean it's sort of it's sort of like going from, you know, I, I think about it, you know, from a quality measurement, like, you know, five sigma, five sigma to six sigma is hard to do because it, you got to be so precise, you know, to go from zero to three. Well, you can change a lot of things and get that kind of, you know, improvement. And like yeah. for, for amateurs like me, little to our, you know, tweaks can have a huge impact. I could save a ton of strokes. Those guys, well, you just got to be fine tuning. Yeah. I mean, I, I laugh all the time whenever. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm staying in a tour event and they got the, the rope or the fence back there and there's all the people standing around watching. You know, I'm standing up there like I'm really telling them something. And I'm probably telling them something so basic, like, Hey man, you're lined up to the right here. The ball's too far back or, you know, you got your butt over your heels a little bit too much. It's not, I mean, it's such fine line. And the thing is the beauty of like teaching guys after you teach them for quite a while, you kind of know what they're, their Achilles heel is. So you always kind of jump in on that. There's one or two adjustments that you always make on them. And that's really it. You know, if they get playing a bunch of wind or they, you know, play different turf conditions, they'll, you know, kind of get their setup messed up and just adjust them back to where kind of their, their baseline. The beauty now is like I have, uh, up in my studio in Carter's like an indoor studio that I have a, what's called an OptiTracker Gears 3D. And what I really love to do with it is I use it for two, two situations. Like I get somebody here the first time that's struggling and I'll get them on there and see what kind of out of sorts. But the best thing to use it for is like I had Hudson Swafford up here a couple of days ago and he's absolutely striping it right now. So I got a 3D capture of him. So when he gets off, I can throw him in there and see exactly what's off instead of guessing, you know. Is the spine tilted one way more than it was before? Is pelvis height the same? Do you have the same knee bends? Is the, you know, is the grip the same coming in there the same way that it came in before? So there is some advantages in the technology now that, that really help you keep a guy in line. And Scott, let's, let's talk about the mental game because I imagine at that level, that's very important. It's a, it's a huge part of the game that you know, we all seem to struggle with, I was talking to Dave Stockton Jr., you know, previously, right before you came on. And one of the things you talk about is, you know, the, the negative thoughts start to creep in your head if you're over the ball too long. Talk about, you know, working with those guys from a mental perspective. You know, the thing is, it's kind of the X factor. And, you know, there's 
I t- teach a lot of really good Division One golfers, and then you know guys that are miniature guys, and then you know Corn Ferry guys. And the kind of the X factor is hard to put your finger on is when when people have the ability to train on a driving range, and then go from the driving range and use the best of it they have, and not freak out about it. So, like the guy that stands on the range and hits balls five and five and six hours a day and looking for perfect, that guy's probably not going to be a PGA Tour player. It's like Aaron Badley was a perfect example when I got helping him. And, you know, he just got driving a little bit better. It was great for him. He wasn't looking for perfect. He was looking to be somewhere in the fairway or the first cut, you know. So it, it's kind of how, and it's really hard to put your finger on. I've had this conversation a bunch with, especially young up-and-comers, about, you know, what it takes to be a tour player. And it's really how you handle the miss hit and how bad your miss hit is. And, I you know, I mean, one of the biggest things I tell people is I don't care about the best shots you hit. My job is to help you with the worst shots you hit is playable. So what what really good tour coaches are trying to do is they're trying to make a guy's miss narrow enough they can continue to play and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make them make a double. So to that end, because you're right, we, we get obsessed with being as perfect as we can, but it is sort of managing our misses. I think you, you hear, we, I hear that a lot. How, how, how well do you manage your misses? So when you're working with a tour player and they start to get a little awry with where, where they're spraying the ball and it's not a real nice tight pattern, how do you help them manage the misses, not only from the swing perspective, but from the mental side? Uh, you know, with me, it's way more, way more fix the swing to help the mental. You know, it's like the sports psychologist of the world. And there's definitely use for those guys out on tour. I'm not knocking them, but you can't fake confidence, man. It's like you can have the greatest sports psychology routine in the world, but if you're hitting it in the tree, you're going to lose confidence. Uh, and it's just about, you know, if, if you can give guys a little, you know, the best thing is like that. If you've ever read any of those books about that John Wood guy, who was the great basketball coach, he's trying to, what he's trying to do and what instructors are trying to do is that are really good at what they do. They give you the most information with the least amount of words. So it's not complicated. So if you can take things and give guys real simple little deals, not a lot. Because the, the tour golf swing lasts about 0.9. If you can give them real small little exact details that they can put in there and make adjustments, then they can move on forward. But if it's these big, like when you look at a lot of this information on the Instagram of these instructors, and they're trying to give you in-depth information in a small period of time, but it's always so complicated. You can't, you got 0.96 in a second. You don't have enough time to do a whole bunch or try to move the club a certain way by doing certain things. It's really, you got to make micro adjustments that when the club comes out of there, it just goes in the right spot for that player. There's different, there's, there's really kind of two schools of instruction. There's guys that, that have like a certain pattern they really like, you know, and I mean, if you, if, you know, people that are golf kind of nuts are probably watching on Instagram. Like there's a lot of this deep face, deep, lead arm, a lot of flexion in the lead wrist, golf swing that's super popular online now. But that doesn't fit everybody's pattern. So, you know, I'm not that kind of instructor because Chris Kirk and Boo Weekly 
swing at the golf ball completely different, and they're both great golfers. Trey Mullinax is way different than Scott Stallings. It's different than – so what I try to do is I try to take guys that are already – and luckily I'm at a point now where most of the tour guys I teach, I didn't raise them from college to send them out to tour. Like the, the Hank that I teach, now I started teaching him in college, and he's on tour. And Jillian Hollis, I started teaching her in college and helped her get the tour. But the average guy is somebody more like a, a Trey Mullinax, where I'm just trying to take what is a really good pattern because he's out there. He's one of the best players in the world. And I'm just trying to clean it up a little bit to make it more efficient, to make him have a narrower miss, which gives him confidence. A narrow miss, a one-way miss, gives tour players confidence. 98, 99% of them want to miss it to the right. Right-handed golfers, they want to hit a push out to the right. Is that right? Why? Uh, because a, a pull is a shut face, and they're hot, and they go far. And If you've been to many PGA Tour events, long left of a PGA Tour green, it's not a good place to be. Short right's way better than long left. One of the things that you have some, you have some really great videos that are available out on YouTube, and I was, I was taking a look at several of them. I want to get you to share a couple of tips for our listeners tonight. And one of them is around how to get the club in the right place so we're swinging on the right plane. Talk about how we can make sure we're doing that. Well, I mean, there's, I'm a, I'm a elbow plane guy. That's kind of one of the first guys I ever, I took a, whenever I got to be a club pro as a kid, you know, I called myself a kid. I was in my early twenties and, I made a list of stuff I thought was important to be a good head pro. One of them was instruction. I was a mediocre, decent club pro player, so I wanted to be better myself. So I went on this journey of going up and down Hilton Head Island paying these guys to get golf lessons. And I just kept leaving the golf lesson, you know, well, that wasn't much. You know, I'll go do it for a day or two. But it was nothing that I'd sink my teeth into, and I'd be like, that makes sense to me, you know. So a friend of mine that played it, Clemson, his name was Oswald Brody, told me about a guy in Atlanta, and I was still on Hilton Head, so I rode up here to George Kellenhofer's, and he was a golf machine guy that taught on the elbow plane. I had a couple lessons from him, but the main thing I learned about from George more than anything was elbow plane, and then, you know, if you teach on the elbow plane, you kind of set your camera up a certain way, you have the same view every time how the club goes around you. So, with me, why playing is so important is because it's a couple reasons, but one of the main reasons is most golf shots on the PGA Tour, a lot of them are off-speed golf shots because you don't get perfect numbers all the time. Well, I always feel like if a guy, when they have the club and it flips vertical, so when their lead arm's parallel with the ground on the backswing, the shaft flips up vertical, if the club is on plane at that point, you don't have to make any adjustments to swing it down and get it back on plane. So you can make abbreviated backswings and the club is relatively, you know, with good hand actions, relatively going to point down the target line. But if you're, if the club's way behind you or the club's way in front of you and you make an abbreviated backswing, it's way behind you and you abbreviate your backswing, you're probably going to push it out to the right because you're under the plane a bunch. If it's, if it's way out in front of you, you're probably going to hit pulls, you know, on your off-speed wedge shots or your little dinky shots. So. That's why I kind of teach, or that's why I've always taught that way, just because I have a belief that you got to set people up to hit off-speed shots. You, you know, I mean, if you hit your, you know, the tour guy hits an eight-iron 165 yards, 
I mean, you're going to get one of those a week. The rest of the time, you're going to have 158 or 55 or, you know, 61. or So I want a guide. I want people to have the ability to take speed off the ball in the easiest possible way. Uh, so, you know, the line, what I do is I set a camera up that's hands high and I look through the grip into the, into the target and I draw a line from the neck of the club or the, the hosel of the club up to the bottom of the elbow because that's, you know, when you're on the downswing, so the the force, your arms are going to straighten out and that's where they straighten out your elbow. So that might be a little complicated for a podcast, but, uh, that's the basis of what I, what I teach and there's variations of that I got guys that are a little above it a little below it and there's reasons I do that but basically that's kind of what most if you look on my Instagram that's what most of my players look like whenever they swing the club back but when their left arms parallel the ground if you draw a line down the shaft it points at the ball Scott let's also talk a little bit about the short game a couple of the shots that uh, strike fear into a lot of we amateurs is going to be the one when we're in the bunker and we're short-sided to the pin, or we've got a uh, an uphill green, and now we're down at the bottom of the hill and we've short-sided ourselves. So that sort of high-soft pitch shot or the high-soft sand shot is really difficult for us to pull off. How can we hit that shot better? Uh, the number one thing I would tell, like, if I get a kid down there, you know, if I get a 12-year-old kid, and, you know, the only shot, wedge shot he really has is the back-footed, lean the shaft forward, kind of stand on your left foot and hit down on it. The first thing I'll do to him is I'll get him out there and give him a real strong grip and make him cup their left wrist and stand around and learn how to hit the back of the golf club to bounce. There's zero leading edge, zero leading edge. Learn, teach him how to stand there and whack the bounce into the ground. And teach them that if you hit the bounce on the ground, you don't take a divot and it kicks a club out of the ground. Well, that's basically what a bunker shot is. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to hit bunker shots, you know, but the best, the best bunker short game guys in the world, a lot of times they're Australians. Those guys line up square. They, they swing the club around on plane. It's a lower plane because they're normally hold the handle lower. And then they know how to use the bounce. Or in other words, whenever the club comes into the ball, the shaft's not leaned way forward. It's more straight up and down. And that's kind of how you whack the bounce, and that's how you add tons of dynamic loss. So once I kind of teach somebody how to do that, then I'll just go, there's a lot of options if you swing the club. If you get square to it, swing the club around on a on a lower plane, you know how to take forward lean out of it. Then you can put the ball back. You can put it up. That'll make it go higher and lower, or you can move farther away from it, which lowers the handle, which makes it go higher. Or you can stand in there and then try to get the grip farther back behind the ball with impact, and that makes it go higher. So the easiest way, like if I take an, uh, you know, an amateur and they can't hit a bunker shot at all, the first thing I'll do is exactly what I said, get them put pretty strong left-hand grip, fill your left wrist really cut at a dress, and never lose that cuff until what it feels like to whack the back of the bounce into the ground. Well, Scott, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and, and see you about getting lessons or follow you on Instagram or uh, over on Twitter. 
Yeah, the, uh, really, the only thing I do now is Instagram. Just it's better for me. I'm dyslexic, so I can't spell very well. So I'm better with pictures. But my Instagram is Scott Hamilton Golf. It's just at Scott Hamilton Golf on Instagram. That's the thing that I keep current put stuff on all the time. I really have got to make a point of fixing my website at some point. But you know, the, I really I'm not really marketing to teach people, so I mostly just teach tour people. So I kind of laid off that thing, but I need to get back on it just to clean it up for situations like this. But my well, website, Scott, I can't Scott Hamilton Golf, yeah. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to come and be a part of the show. I feel like there's a ton to learn from you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed the, the day stocking, too. The man, I pulled his Instagram up and looked at those greens. They're incredible looking. Yeah, and I'm telling you, that's crazy, something. isn't it? So the, all that yes, white is. in there is not even sand; it's just white grass. I don't know where the bunkers are. That's right. And it looks so cool. Yeah, yeah super yeah, cool. People need to check that out. It's super neat. Yeah. Well, Scott, take care, my friend. Uh, all the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. See you, buddy. Bye. See you, Scott. That's Scott Hamilton. That's Scott Hamilton Golf on Instagram is where you can find him. I feel like we've just barely touched the tip of the iceberg with all the things that we can learn from Scott. So look forward to getting him back on the show again soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. I want to send out my sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Dave Stockton Jr., and to Scott Hamilton as well for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. You can stream this show as a podcast all over the net. We're on podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, and Player.fm as well. Folks, I can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you continue to make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week. Hit him straight, my friend.